Hello, welcome back to Craft Truck. Uh, this is a business of film podcast. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and today we are joined uh, by Stephen Sills. Uh, Stephen is co-author of Movie Money, Understanding Hollywood's Creative Accounting Practices. Uh, I was first introduced to Stephen about 10 years ago via his book, and uh, needless to say, I was very excited to get on the phone with him today. Um, he takes a very complicated subject and manages to distill it down to its simplest terms, uh, which if you are in the business of film, uh, you quickly understand uh, that there is no such thing as one definition for anything. Uh, Stephen shares some wonderful tips, whether you are in studio land or the independent space, uh, if you're making your first feature or you're on your 20th. Um, Stephen shares not only some insights in terms of how Hollywood is working today, but also things that you can do uh, to protect yourself when you're entering into, uh, I guess, negotiations with a buyer. And so without further ado, uh, Stephen Sills. Um, all right, so uh, Stephen, perhaps you can just take a minute and uh, just introduce uh, our listeners to yourself. Who who are you and, and what do you do? Um, my name is Stephen Sills. I am a certified public accountant, a certified fraud examiner, a certified financial forensic, and I also have a law degree. I'm a member of the California Bar. Um, for the last... 32 years, um, I've been working in public accounting, specializing in auditing motion picture and television profit participations on behalf of talent and investors. So what my job is, I'm engaged by people that make movies and TV shows and in return for providing their services, not only receive a salary, but also receive a share of the profits as specifically defined within their agreement with whoever the producer or distributor is. And they engage me to audit that producer or distributor, which in most cases are the major studios, to determine whether or not they are properly reporting to them in accordance with their contracts. Now, I have to admit, I was first introduced to you and your work by way of a book, uh, Movie Money, Understanding Hollywood's creative accounting practices. And the, the book that you initially wrote, you, you wrote with co-authors uh, Bill Daniels and, and David Leedy. Uh, the initial publication uh, of the book that I read was version one of, I guess, 1998. And then you've since updated it. Uh, you did a, a second edition in uh, 2006, I believe. Um, so my first question to you was, given that you've been doing this for such a long time, I am curious just to know what has what is what is the state of the union right now in terms of uh, has nothing changed in the last ten years? Is everything the kind of the same? Is is what we're going to be talking about today? Is it different than the way it was? And I guess just going into this question, perhaps we should even start out with what is it? What is it that you do in terms of? In terms of the idea of 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 understanding, where where do you start? Where do you start there? Where, where where do you start? Well, let me give you a little history of the books first. The the, the first publication of Movie Money, um, there were three authors, as you mentioned, uh, David Levy, Bill Daniels, and myself, and it was an interesting mix of people. David Levy 
um, historically had worked for um, major studios. He had worked at Disney for a number of years. And many, many years ago, back in the 1970s, had written a small pamphlet on profit participations, which was really the first published information um, in this area. And at some point, um, a law school teacher of Bill Daniels, who I happen to know, contacted me and said, I think it's time for there to be a major publication about profit participations, and hooked the three of us up. David, uh, who had written this original pamphlet, and at some point put together um, a manuscript that he wanted to get published. Um, myself, who actually worked in the field, and then Bill Daniels, who was in law school at the time, but while he was going to law school was the financial writer for Daily Variety. And so he was basically the scribe. And so um, David gave us his uh, his what he had hoped would be his publication, his manuscript. And um, uh, Bill and I uh, converted it into the book Movie Money. We did, um, a in 2006, we came out with a second edition which addressed certain changes in the industry. And I've actually just spoken with my publisher recently. They would like me to do a third edition because of the changes that have occurred. And the really, this really is, Jesse, a moving target. Things change in the industry all the time. Um, I was I spoke recently at both the Producers Guild conference here in Los Angeles and at the USC Law Symposium, which was held about three weeks ago here in Los Angeles. There's a big conference every year at both UCLA and USC um, on um, entertainment law. And at every one of these for the last couple of years, the big topic has been new media. Um, we know that um, the the home video market is diminishing, and it's being replaced by what is known in the business as the new media market, and that could be anything from iTunes to VOD to SVOD to streaming. Um, and so uh, all of these things change the way accounting is done in the motion picture industry. So part of my job is to stay on top of this information, figure out what the studios are doing, what impact that has on my clients, and whether or not there are issues that we should be raising on audit to get our clients a bigger share or really their fair share of the revenue that's coming in. Now, but, just, sorry, continue yet? No, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was, I was going to ask you, just because you brought up something interesting there, uh, what the studios are doing. And so I wanted to ask you, what are the studios doing? What do you see uh, that's happening in terms of, and I don't want to come at this from sort of a negative perspective, but from what I took away from the book, it see, sounds very much, and it is the case, that gross participation, net participation, and everything in between, adjusted gross. Um, it, let's, let's start there for, for just a second. What do those terms mean to you? When someone says gross participation, when someone says adjusted participation, when someone says net participation, what do those terms mean to you? Where, where do you start? Well, there is a norm that you would expect when somebody uses that terminology, but the reality is you have to look at the specific contract. And the way the studio is required to report is specifically defined. Um, I am a CPA, but what I do has nothing to do with generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP, which is the way financial statements are prepared for companies. This is purely contract accounting. The studio has the requirement to report to the participant based on what the contract says. So there's, there's these general terms. What is a gross participation? It's usually a participation in the revenue with certain deductions, but um, it's, it's a, a much better than a net participation, which means the studio normally gets to take distribution fees off the top and recover all of their expenses and recover all of their negative cost and interest and a number of other matters. So again, it really depends on just how that is specifically defined. 
Um, and that the important thing about what we do is reading and understanding the contract and then looking at how the studio is interpreting that contract to see if they are in fact taking advantage of the participant. Do you find that the interpretation of a definition varies widely from a contract to the way uh, contracts are interpreted by both the producer on one side and the studio or distributor, independent distributor on the other hand? Or are these terms, once they're codified in a contract, um, are they generally regarded as, you know, the way it is? How much, I guess what I'm asking is, how much gray area do you see in the interpretation of the language in these contracts? Well, there's, there's huge amounts of gray area, although it's interesting to note that the legal people seem to move from studio to studio. So there's a great deal of, uh, when, when you look at the contracts from the various motion picture producers and distributors, there's a great deal of similarity. And, and probably it's because when a business affairs executive has left Disney and gone over to Paramount, they've taken their language with them. And so you see common language appear throughout these agreements. But there, there are differences with each one of them, and certain things can be negotiated if you have good representation, and that's what you're looking for. When we sit down to figure out what we want to do on an audit, the first thing we do is read the contract and see if that contract differs from what we would normally expect to see from that particular studio. Because if the attorney was able to get certain provisions changed, chances are the studio is going to screw it up because they do things a certain way. They're huge multinational corporations. They have accounting systems. The systems do what the systems always do. And if you can change the expectations by changing the language in the contract, chances are they're not going to get it right. But maybe the easiest way for us to discuss this is to talk about what happens on an audit, what, what the process is. Um, when we do an audit, we, we normally end up having three different types of claims against the distributor. Um, the first one is called errors agreed to be corrected, and these are simply mistakes that are made. Um, there's certain language in the contract that's either misinterpreted or there's an expense that belongs to another movie and the accounting clerk codes it to the wrong picture. Um, I'll I give you an interesting example. We did one audit where um, there was a provision that said the studio could charge up to 1% of gross receipts for dues and assessments. Dues and assessments are a particular type of expense that has to do with payments made to um, the um, Motion Picture Association of America and for lobbying and other expenses of the studio in their overall distribution system. And they can charge expenses up to 1%. Well, somebody at the studio coded it so that they charged 1% of gross receipts. And we went in to do the audit, and we said, well, this is very nice, but how much did you actually spend on this particular cost? And it turned out that they had spent about $1.8 million less than the 1%. And so when we brought it to their attention that the contract didn't say you could charge 1%, it said you could charge up to 1%, they agreed to reduce our client's charge by $1.8 million. So those types of things, the errors agreed to be corrected, quite often will pay for the cost of an audit. Um, and they allow you then to look at the other two types of um, charges that come through that become part of the audit report. On the other extreme are things called issues of equity. Sometimes the contract is very clear as to what the studio can do, but from an auditor's perspective, it just doesn't make sense or it just isn't fair. There's a provision in virtually every studio contract that says, 
we can charge taxes that are paid for remitting money from overseas to the United States. It also says the manner in which we treat those taxes for purposes of filing our own U.S. income tax returns will not impact the way in which we report to you. So they've put specific language in there that protects them. What this all relates to is the fact that if you, uh, the United States has a tax treaty with Japan that says if you move money from Japan to the U.S., you have to leave 10% of it in Japan. There's a 10% remittance tax on money remitted back to the U.S. And that's so what, you, and, and, and that's what commonly we would just call a withholding tax? Uh, yes. What, yeah, okay. Yep. But, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's really a remittance tax. And so if you sell a picture to a TV station in Japan for $100,000, they're only going to send you a check for ninety because you're going to keep $10,000 in Japan. What the studio does in reporting that to a profit participant is gross up the revenue to $100,000 so they can take a distribution fee on it and then charge the $10,000 as an income tax expense. So the net effect is the 90000 they received. The problem is that as a U.S. taxpayer, they get to take that $10,000 they paid to the Japanese government and take a full credit on their U.S. tax return against their U.S. tax liability. So they really aren't out of pocket at all. They really haven't spent the money. They've gotten it back from Uncle Sam. But because the contract says that the way they treat it for their own U.S. tax purposes will not affect the way they report it to you, they still get to charge that. So we have this equity claim that contractually, yes, they're right, but if they didn't pay it, they really shouldn't be charging it. So that's the other extreme. Right. And then in between all of that, there are issues of contract interpretation. Um, even though these contracts are 20 or 30 or 40 pages long, they can't cover every single issue. In every single contract, it says um, we can charge interest on unrecouped production cost at um, prime plus 2%. And so there's a provision that says that they can charge you interest, but it doesn't say how that interest would be calculated. So certain studios decide to calculate it based upon the end of the quarter, at the beginning of the quarter. Somebody decided they would charge the expenses on the 45th day but not credit the revenue until the 90th day. So we have all of these different issues that we have to look at in an interest calculation to see if what they're doing makes sense. And that can we interpret the contract in our client's best interest that will provide some additional revenue for them? And that's where most of these claims fall into, issues of contract interpretation. Now, I know at the beginning you said that most of your business is with uh, the studio level. And obviously when you're talking about errors uh, you know, that they agree to correct and a number like $1.8 million falls out of, oops, that was an error, you're generally going to see this in the studio world. Are you ever engaged or is it ever worthwhile, have you found, uh, for you to be engaged in independent cinema? So dealing with the, in, the more indie films that have uh, independent distributors, not studio distributors, or is the money just never big enough in that world? Um, it's not often big enough, but um, it has been big enough in the past in certain cases. So we have audited smaller movies, we've had audit, we have audited smaller distributors, um, and our process is when we're contacted by a profit participant, we ask to see the agreement, we ask to see the statements from the distributor, and we make a determination, can we, based on how much it's going to cost us to do the work, 
obtain a recovery for our client in excess of what the cost might be. Now, if somebody comes to us and says, look, I got a statement from this distributor, and they tell me I'm $2 million in the hole, and the entire picture has generated $1.5 million worth of revenue, we're going to look at that and say, look, even if I went in and found that they had misreported to you by a half a million dollars, all I'm going to do is reduce your deficit from a million and a half down to a million dollars. You're not going to get anything. And it's very unlikely no matter what I do, I'm going to be able to find enough for you, and therefore we would not recommend doing that audit. But where there is money being paid, and um, or if it's on the cusp and it's close to being paid, and we know that there are issues in the contract or with that particular distributor, then it's definitely worthwhile. And we have done international auditing. We've done domestic auditing for small distribution. It really just depends upon how well the picture performs, what kind of advances have been paid to the profit participants? So will they ever get beyond those advances and recover? And what kind of issues occur within that particular distributor? Um, and again, based upon our experience, we know how they do business, whether or not we're going to be able to find enough to get somebody money. Because if all we're going to be able to do is just get back your fee, it really isn't worth spending the time and the effort to do that. Now, do you find... Uh, imp- I guess I don't want to ask this in, in a, again, a negative light, but do you find that there is a habitual practice to misinterpret the contract? Uh, is, 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 is this something that is an ongoing problem inside Hollywood? Because you see things like, obviously, and I think you even reference it in your book, the famous Harry Potter statement. So anytime a producer or a filmmaker or anybody involved, obviously, you know, in this chain, hears words like net profits, you know, automatically people think, yeah, net profits, that, that's, that's not worth anything. So I guess it's kind of a two-part question. The first is, is there, is there sort of, again, a habitual practice to find ways to not necessarily, not necessarily report? And, you know, and, 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 I suppose that keeps you in business to a certain extent, but um, but you know, can you can you talk about that a little bit, just in terms of you know the the, the state of everyone's thinking inside Hollywood when it comes to contract reporting? Sure, um, I think what happens is the studios write the contracts, they interpret things in their own best interest, and um, the participants have little chance to um, unless they have a lot of leverage to negotiate significant changes within those contracts. So one would expect that if you're writing the agreement, you're going to write it in such a way that it's going to benefit you. And I think that's exactly what happens here, um, that the studios have, um, have written these agreements with a certain end result in mind. And that end result is, um, from their perspective, to be fair and to give a reasonable amount of money to the profit participant, but to cover their own costs. Whereas from the profit participants' perspective, look, I'm, you know, I, I was a contributor to the success of this movie, and I'm entitled to receive my fair share. There's a very famous litigation out there about the Buckwald case, and in fact, you mentioned about the that people say that net profits aren't worth anything. A lot of that comes from the testimony during the Buckwald trial, which had to do with the picture coming to America, the Eddie Murphy film. Right. Um, that Eddie Murphy, in his deposition, called net profits monkey points. Right. Uh, that they're they're really not worth anything, and that's so that's it's kind of that that has stuck. <laughs> uh, that language has stuck, um, but uh, it, it certainly can be worth a significant amount of money depending upon how the film performs. And so, uh, yes, um, 
the contracts are usually interpreted in the studio's best interest. And in that Buckwald case, there was a, a testimony from a former studio executive that was really shed a lot of light on how this whole process works. He says, you know, the reason we do the things we do is because the winners have to pay for the losers. That for every successful film we make, we may make nine unsuccessful movies, and we have to cover the cost of those unsuccessful movies. If we give away all of the profits for the successful one, then we're going to be losing all the money on the unsuccessful ones, and we need everybody to participate in that. Well, a profit participant doesn't really feel that way. They said, look, I had nothing to do with those nine unsuccessful films. I contributed to the benefit of your successful movie, and I should share in its success. And that's where the tension is um, as to whether or not you need to bear the cost of the business of the studio or if you should just participate in the success of the movie in which you were an actor or a writer or director. So let me ask you this. Uh, I'm a producer. I'm about to engage uh, in my negotiations for uh, my distribution advance or with uh, a, financier who, a financier who will ultimately control the distribution rights. What would you say would be the, I don't know, two or three things that I should do to help ensure that I'm treated fairly as a profit participant? Everybody has different reasons for engaging in contracts. Um, if you're a successful producer, you may be looking to make money. If you're a new producer, you may be looking simply to get a credit. So a lot of it has to do with what you want to accomplish. But let's assume everybody wants to get their fair share and what they're really entitled to. I have a few suggestions. Number one, get a very good lawyer and have that lawyer negotiate on your behalf. It's going to cost you some money up front, but it's going to save you a fortune on the back end. Number two, and I think every lawyer will tell you this, get as much money up front as you possibly can because you don't control how you're going to be reported to in the future. The studio controls that whole process, how they record information, how they report information, how they interpret the contract. So the more money you can get up front, the better off you're going to be. And then keep an eye on what happens to you. Review your statements, get good consultation, send them to me and I'll review them and tell them if anything jumps out at me that seems to be wrong. Um, the other side of it is if uh, you have a good lawyer, your lawyer may want to confer with an auditor before they sign the contract to see if they could suggest some changes in the agreement that could be made that could benefit you in the future. So uh, there are so many circumstances, Jesse, that surround that deal that you're making. What kind of a picture are we talking about? Where is it going to be distributed? How is it going to be distributed? What kind of history does the distributor have? And what are they offering you both up front and on the back end before you decide which deal to take? And then it's just a matter of having somebody represent you who um, understands those circumstances and will make the best deal possible under those circumstances for you. Um. In the, at the beginning of the conversation, you, you mentioned your publisher was asking for uh, your third volume of the book, which obviously, given that there's been two previous, that it is an ever-evolving uh, model in which we operate now. And, you know, recently, John Sloss over at Synetic, in the, at least in the independent world, uh, you know, had made some waves in terms of, you know, reporting or making public or transparent uh, VOD grosses and uh, and SVOD grosses and and, and and which respect you know which relate to you know uh, specifically iTunes downloads and this whole new model of distributing films. So I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about how the and again this you know what is this new model is obviously you know evolving. But I'm wondering if you can talk about 
whatever you feel this new model is with respect to the flow of money. So do you really see there is a major shift in where money is coming from right now in terms of revenues and how that's impacting, obviously, uh, you know, what, what you do? There's definitely a major shift. Uh, the DVD market is diminishing very rapidly. The VOD market is increasing, but not at the same rate as the diminution of the, VO, of the, the DVD market. And so there's a definite downturn in overall revenue. And that has to do with the pay, pe- way people get their content. Um, but to understand all of this, um, it requires a little bit of history. And so we need to go back to the early 1980s when um, the home video business first started. And again, it all started with the Sony Betamax machine in Japan, where um, Sony created this machine as a time-shifting tool to allow Japanese businessmen and women to record their favorite shows during the day and watch them when they got home at night. And in the early 1980s, a gentleman by the name of Andre Blay created a company called Magnetic Video. And um, he uh, worked with Sony to market that machine in the United States and at the same time negotiated a deal through his company with 20th Century Fox to use their software, to use their pictures, to put them on those funny little plastic boxes that you could play in this machine. And that was the beginning of the home video industry. At the time Blay made his deal with Fox, they sat down together and said, well, how much should we each get out of this product? And they figured out that the cost-to-revenue ratio back in the early 1980s on home video was about 60%, that it would cost 60 cents of every dollar to buy the tape, to make the plastic box, to market the box, to market the machine, to get this product out to the public. And that 40% that was left over, they decided to split. And so Magnetic Video got a 20% royalty for creating the concept, and Fox got a 20% royalty for providing the software, which was their films. So that's where the 20% concept came from. Unfortunately, that 20% concept became the basis for the entire industry. And in most profit participation contracts, it says for home video revenue, you will receive 20% of the revenue received by the distributor from the sale of video cassettes. And that's extended into the DVD market. Unfortunately, very shortly after the beginning of the industry, those ratios started to shift. And now the cost-to-revenue ratio for DVDs is probably in the 25 to 30% range. So they're making a 65% profit, but they're only paying 20% of the revenue to the profit participant. Now, that takes us into the VOD market, where, which is becoming uh, or will soon become the predominant source of revenue for this type of distribution. And the studios have all decided that they're going to classify VOD as home video revenue subject to the 20% royalty, even though they don't have any cost structure involved. This is simply being downloaded or transferred electronically, so there's no cost of a disk, there's no marketing cost, it's all being done by whoever's selling the product, and yet they're only paying 20% of that revenue to the profit participant. And when we ask them why they're doing it, their response is because we need the profits that we lost from the downturn in the DVD market. So just, so just to be clear, let me just take a step back there very quickly. What you're saying is I go to iTunes, I download a movie. That movie will get recorded. Uh, iTunes takes, I believe, their 30% off the top or whatever it is. Whatever's left goes to the distributor, the distributor will then theoretically, all else being equal, would pay 20% of, 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 
of their 100% to me, the profit participant, and they'd keep 80%. And they would do that all the while knowing that it was a digital file that is being sent out, you know, uh, and, and not an, any kind of hard good. Well, s- some of the studios have have made a determination that if it's a, um, a temporary download, it's more equivalent to television and might report 100%. But um, if it's a permanent download and you get to keep it, then it's as if you went out and bought the DVD and therefore they're only going to pay you 20%. So in that latter case, that's exactly what's happening. Let's say that the distributor, whoever it happened to be, um, charged you $10 and um, the, the person you bought it from got to keep 30 or let's say they got to keep 30%. So they got to keep $3. They gave $7 to the studio. The studio will report 20% of that $7 to you on your statement and then pay you whatever your profit participation share was. So you would get $1.40, and then if you were getting a 10% profit participation, you would get 14 cents. That sounds like out of, a great out of the original ten dollars share. Great deal for the studios. <laughs> well, again, and and they were honest enough when we would ask them the question as part of the audit process. Well, you don't have these costs anymore. How can you possibly only pay twenty percent royalty? And they said, well, we need to in order to maintain our profit margins. And so, what they do now is they write it in the contract. And the contract says that for certain types of download, you will only get a 20% royalty on the amounts that we receive. So now, it's part of your deal. Is this across all the studios? or any, Are all the studios treating it the exact same way? Is this what you've found? I'm just curious. Uh, it's well, there's a, slight, there's a slight variation. Again, um, certain studios have said if, if it is a temporary download, then we're going to treat it like TV and report right. 100% of what we get. If it's a temporary download or a permanent download, then we're going to consider it to be as if you own it and we're only going to pay you the 20% royalty. And other studios are treating everything that comes in from this form of revenue as video and subject to the 20% royalty. So when you're negotiating your deal, you need to find out from them how they really treat this. Right, that is so interesting. Uh, and in fact, it's the first time I've, I've, I've heard, I've heard that, and and that actually blows my mind that 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 they're doing that. And I guess there's very little pushback that uh, the producers. I mean, depending on I guess what your position is, but I, I assume that that's going to be a hard line in the sand. The studios are going to want to maintain for as long as possible. That, that seems to be the case. You know, we're dealing with oligopolies here. There's um, Ninety percent of the films are being distributed by a handful of distributors. If you don't like their deal, they're going to tell you to go down the street. But you're going to find out that down the street, they're offering you exactly the same deal. So at some point, you say, "Well, I got to get my movie made, and hopefully it'll be a huge success, and I'll get something out of this." And you make your deal. Unfortunately, that's the case. Wow. Now, what when you're? Uh, I just want to kind of come back to just some of the more practical things, and I, I know that. It's somewhat of a difficult question, obviously, because everything is a defined term, and so there's really no... I mean, it's the weirdest thing in the world. It's the only business in the world where, like you said at the beginning, there it's has nothing to do with you know generally accepted accounting practices. Everything is kind of made up as you go along, subject to history and what is, you know, and precedent. Um, but how much, how much pushback do do i guess can you have when you're dealing with the studios if at all i mean are are these things actually negotiable at all and are, and if and if these things are negotiable where are the areas that you would negotiate what are the things that you would say you know what these are the areas that i would look 
to negotiate in when you're when you're doing your deal. Everything else might be really difficult to you know actually get a studio to move on. But here are the here are the places that I would focus. Well, a lot of it has to do with your level of success and how much leverage you have in negotiating your deal. If you take a picture to Sundance and you have one distributor coming at you wanting to buy it, it's a lot different than if you have three or four distributors coming out at you to buy it. So you may be able to negotiate a slightly better deal if you have some, a, a number of different people vying for the rights to your film. Um, if you've had a certain level of success and you're moving up the participation ladder, as it were, um, you know, every deal gets a little bit better than the next deal and you kind of set a precedent for how you're going to negotiate. Depending upon who your attorney is, there are some studios that have a standard deal and then they have um, a, an A-level writer uh, for a higher level participant or an A-level writer depending upon who your lawyers are because they've, they've pre-negotiated these deals. So for us, um, if, if an attorney comes to us and says, look, here's what I've been offered at this particular studio, we have confidentiality agreements in place with every studio. So we really can't say, well, I know that Universal does this better than Disney does. But we can say, we've seen certain issues come up in some of our audits that you might want to ask for this. You might want to ask for certain caps on dues and assessments and on checking and collection, that sometimes they're willing to limit the amount of charges that they make against you. Um, we've seen other provisions being negotiated for investors, for example. The studios have always insisted that that any tax benefit that they get from um, tax credits are not going to be passed through to the participants. But if you are a financial investor and you have, uh, are providing significant capital to the studios to co-finance films, we've been able to see them actually make those kind of deals where um, they'll get some kind of a benefit from the tax credits that are passed through. So a lot of it really depends upon who you are, the amount of leverage you, are, you have, and who's representing you. Um, but as I said to you earlier, my advice to anybody is get as much money up front as you possibly can. Other ways to do it is to kind of hoist them on their own petard. And so um, you, you often hear about box office bonuses, that if the picture is successful, in addition to the salary I've made, I'm going to get a bonus if it performs well in the theatrical market. And so what lawyers would do is they would key that bonus to information that's being reported in Variety. Because we know that the studios puff the information they give to Variety. They all want to have the most successful film of the week. And so they may increase their numbers a little bit. And what you want to do is make them pay you bonuses based upon those increased numbers so you tie it to the information that they're providing to the trade press. That's great little advice. Trick, little, little tricks like that can help. That, that, that's good. Do you have any more little tricks like that? That's a, <laughs> that's a great little trick. I wouldn't mind another couple of those. <laughs> well... When you get your next deal, send it to me and we'll talk about it. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, so out of, out of curiosity, um, between the, the, the majors and the mini majors uh, that are, I guess, you know, that are, all, or that are left right now, what are the uh, – sorry, do you find that, that between the mini majors and the majors that there are – variations in the way they major variations in the way that they do things that is to say do you in what you see and I know, again I know you mostly deal in in the studio world but do you see major differences between the indie world and the studio world are those two very different worlds in which thing in in the way in which things are handled 
I think when it comes right down to it, probably not. Probably um, the, the people that run the business affairs and the legal departments at the mini-majors probably came from the major studios at some point. They brought their definitions with them. So the language isn't really all that different. Um, it's just that the dollar amounts are so much smaller. And the likelihood of um, recovering all of the, the costs, the advances that are made, the production costs that are incurred, the distribution expenses that are incurred are so much less likely in the independent world. Um, and, and I also think that for, for independent filmmakers, um, they're not necessarily, I mean, so they certainly would like to get the money. Nobody would not turn down the money. But I think quite often they're more interested in just getting exposure for their product and getting um, additional titles on their resume. And so there's still a benefit to releasing a film, even if you don't get a whole lot of money on the back end. The problem comes when one of those independent films becomes a huge success. And... Um, you really expect to be compensated for that, and because of the way the language is written, um, it doesn't really work out the way you would like it to, and that's when it becomes problematic for people, and that's when we end up in litigation, which is quite often where this goes. Um, we have, um, you know, I, I would say more than 99% of the work we do ends up being resolved through settlement negotiations, but every once in a while, these things can't be resolved, and they end up in court. Um, you know, we talked about the contracts and, and what you can do with the agreements. It's very, very rare, in fact, almost impossible these days to get a contract with a major distributor or even a mini-major that doesn't have an arbitration provision in it. Um, you're no longer really going to be allowed to go to court and sue in front of a jury or even in front of a judge. There's going to be an arbitration requirement, and that's because the studios have had real problems um, in court um, in front of the jury because they are the big monolithic distributor and they're usually dealing with somebody who's well-known to the public as an actor or a director um, and much more appealing and they've probably feel they've lost a lot of cases simply because of the personalities involved. So they want to get it out of the hands of the public, so to speak, and in front of an arbitrator who does this for a living. And um, they've had a, a lot more success in arbitration than they may have had in the courts. Right. That that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, is it because the, these arbitrators uh, they understand the game, whereas in the courts you're dealing with, uh, I guess, a, uh, would it be a jury or a judge in that case uh, who would be handling that? I wonder. Well, it depends. I mean, I, you know, I've testified in jury trials and I've testified in trials that are just before a sitting judge, and and um, the success in those trials has been much greater than the success in front of arbitrators. Now, some people might say that's because the arbitrators understand the business, right? Um, because they're usually selected because they have experience in the entertainment world, so maybe they understand the the practicalities of it more. Some people would say that it's because um, you know arbitrators are in business to get more business and. And, you know, you may only be suing a, a studio once, whereas the studio may get sued 15 times. So the chance, chances are that more work will come from the studio than will come from an individual plaintiff in a case. Uh, again, nobody really knows how that works, but, you know, you just see the patterns that develop over a period of time. Hmm, that's fascinating. Uh, I, I, I love hearing these stories. And just, I don't know whether you can, because you do share some stories in uh, in the book, uh, but I'm wondering. Well, you know, Jesse, as, as one of the reasons there are three um, authors on that book is so that when I'm testifying in court, 
and somebody says, Mr. Sills, didn't you say this in your book? I could say, oh, that wasn't me. That was one of the other two guys. So <laughs> they, can't, they can't blame everything on me. <laughs> that's great. Uh, the old, the old uh, governed by committee. It's, it's no, the no. bait and switch. That's what it is. <laughs> wasn't me. It was the other guy. That's right. <laughs> um, are, are there any just... I don't know interesting war stories uh, that you can that you can share that are sort of that are public. Uh, just an example of uh, of a situation that you were in um, and how that situation was resolved. Uh, I don't know whether there's any that come to the top, but I just uh, I love these stories of just you know ways in which these things happen and and and, and got resolved. Well. I'll tell you one of my favorite stories, Jesse. This, and I, I can't give you any of the details of the parties, but very early in my career, I was involved in litigation related to a television show. And um, the whole process was fascinating before, for me because I was in law school at the time, and it was the first time I was ever deposed. And so I was kind of sitting outside myself watching the process while I was going through my deposition. And um, it was very contentious. We had four or five different profit participants, one of whom was very, very wealthy and said, I'm not giving this up. I'm willing to take this as far as we can possibly go because I think they owe us money. And we were preparing for trial in early January, and we had just met uh, before Christmas with the client, and they were ready to go. Everybody was prepared. And then the day after Christmas, I got a phone call from the attorney, and he said, we've settled the case. And I was absolutely shocked. I said, how could you possibly have done that? Everybody was ready to go. We were so far away from each other that nothing was ever going to resolve it. And he said, well, it turns out that one of the defendant's wives was having a Christmas party. And she wanted to invite one of the plaintiffs. And her husband said to her, you can't invite him because he's not going to come because he's suing me. And she said, well, fix it. And so they settled the case because she wanted them to come to her Christmas party. And that, to me, is what Hollywood is all about. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Fix it. That's great. Um, Stephen, this has been this this has been great. I, I, I've definitely learned, you know, uh, a thing or two. and uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, walk us through some of the stuff here this afternoon. Um, can you let people know how, if they wanted to get in touch with you, how best uh, they should connect with you? Sure. Um, they can email me at ssills at greenhassenjanks.com. S-S-I-L-L-S at G-R-E-E-N-H-A-S-S-O-N-J-A-N-K-S dot com. We do have a website, www.greenhassenjanks.com, and I'm accessible through that as well. Or they can go online and buy movie money, and um, I'll make 33 cents, and um, they'll have some interesting reading for themselves. Well, I definitely recommend movie money. It is, if anything, the most entertaining read of a very complicated subject. <laughs> well, thank you, Jesse. I appreciate that. Uh, and that's what makes it great. So, uh, Stephen, thanks again. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure.